Well, good evening, everyone. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, these are difficult, powerful, life-changing words that we read, that we have just read. Words that find their meaning in your very character, that we can only understand really and truly for ourselves if your spirit opens our eyes. Thank you that for those of us who are here this evening, who know you, who treasure the Lord Jesus, there is comfort in our difficulty, in our suffering, there is joy. Father, pray that you would help us to see that uh, what you speak of in your word isn't glib or trite, it's uh, serious and seriously joyful. Please help us to see that in your word this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as we look uh, at the book of 1 Peter, we've been uh, journeying so far. We've only had uh, one stop in our journey. Uh, you can listen to that stop online. Uh, but speaking of stops, I wonder how you get to places that you don't know. If you are Generation Z this evening, if you're born after 1996, you use an app. That's how you get to places you don't know. If you are perhaps the parent of a Generation Z child, uh, if they taught you, then you also use an app. I'll be extremely surprised uh, if some other generations also use an app to get to places. Uh, my wife does use one even though she knows uh, the route. That is because you can take the same route a thousand times, but one day you can have several different incidents in the same route. Uh, that's what happened actually uh, not long ago, two or three weeks ago. Uh, Megan didn't look at uh, the app that particular morning, and as a result, it took her from here to Derby one hour and 40 minutes. I mean, I think that's excessive, don't you? The children arrived at her school before she did. Um, that's, that's just outrageous. Uh, there were some things, however, that in that difficulty helped her to be able to cope. I'm pleased to say that I was one of them. I was at the end of the phone telling her that the reason why she was late was because there, was, there were three incidents here, here, and there. Um, my voice, obviously, was calming and <laughs> soothing. Because if she's not listening to me in the car, don't worry, it's hands-free. She's connected to the car. It's not illegal. She would be listening to somebody read The Lord of the Rings. I think I'm better. But in that situation, what prevented her road rage from being unleashed, as mine often is, was the fact that she had a bigger perspective at, in that moment. The traffic jam she knew was only a slice of her day. She would eventually arrive. I prayed, and she did. And her present focus was on something else. And so we're going to talk about not something so glib, uh, perhaps compared to some of your suffering as a traffic jam, although that is important. But how do we handle difficulty suffering in life according to the book of 1 Peter? What do we do? Because the church, the people he was writing to, knew suffering very well. So how do you encourage a group of people who know suffering very well? 
Do you remember that last time we talked about how God's people are exiles, living away from their home? They long for it. Those were the points that we talked about, how the main idea of the first talk we saw, Christians are like immigrants, uh, living obedient lives to God in a country that's not their home, while they long for the eternity with God in his new world. And this evening, if you're taking notes, God's people have a glorious future. We're going to see that in verses 3 to 9. And another theme as well, God's people have a glorious joy. So a glorious future. I think you'll agree with me that there's at least one thing about all of our lives that make us burst out in praise, like Peter does in verse 3. For me, although it might not look like it, if you know me well, you know it's food. Apart from Jesus, obviously. But just this morning, I found myself explaining uh, to our young people the memory that uh, we had of a food experience that just brought a smile to my face, even as I was explaining that it took uh, three hours to eat a nine-course meal, and it was delightful. <laughs> just as you, as you laugh now, we were laughing, enjoying ourselves. Oh, that pig's cheek was succulent, and yet delicious, going with that onion puree right next to it, artistically put on a plate. There are memories and things that we look back on then they have to bring a smile to our faces. Peter here is excited as he reminds himself of not just a memory of something that happened, but memory of something that God has done and continues to sustain him in, his salvation. He shouts out in praise at the beginning of verse 3 because he's thinking about who God is, what he's done for us. We hardly do any justice, do we? With Can you see it again in your passage, verse 3? An exclamation mark, you know. And John uh, read that uh, beautifully. We hardly do any justice, but it all begins with God's great mercy. What do I mean by that? In the book of 1 Peter, who were these Christians? How were they described? Look at verse 13. They were before they met the Lord Jesus and treasured him, unholy, living according to their evil desires. In verse 18, they were living empty lives because any life lived without the joy of knowing God ultimately is empty. Chapter 2, verse 10. Before they believed in Jesus, they were not God's people, not God's children, because no one is born a child of God until they believe do they become it. In chapter 4, look at verses 3 to 5. Just glance over those very strong words that describe their lifestyle before they became Christians. Debauchery, indulging in their sexual desires, lust, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Other things were taking God's place in their lives. And then in verse 5, Peter says, What did you deserve, you Christians who now treasure the Lord Jesus? What did you deserve? But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They deserved God's judgment. Instead, you look back at chapter 1. Verse 2, what do they get instead of what they deserve judgment? To be chosen, to be foreknown by God, to be sanctified, set apart as his family, to be given grace and peace abundantly. And if you are a Christian, and these things are true of you this evening, you rejoice in these things. If we don't understand that, it's hard to understand why Peter begins with praise. Because he talks about this new birth. 
And when you were born, you, uh, the first time around, that is if you're a Christian, um, you inherited lots of different traits from your parents. You know, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair. Um, but you were also born inheriting some damaging traits, perhaps. Uh, some people say uh, we might be prone to obesity or alcoholism. But you're also born into an identity. You might have been born British or Brazilian or an Olanda, which is a great family name, uh, or a Watkins or a Craig or a Carter. You might have been born into a working class identity type background or middle class or whatever. But for those who have believed in Jesus and treasure him, there's a new birth that now identifies them as child of God. And with this new birth comes, as I said, a glorious future. With this new birth comes a living hope. And if you've been a Christian for some time, you know that when the Bible says, uses the word hope, authors in the Bible don't mean, well, I hope that my wife doesn't mind the mess I left in the kitchen. That's not the sort of hope that we're talking about. That is a useless hope, as I have come to experience. The hope of the Christian is certain. It's sure. It's as certain as the foundation that it stands on. What is that foundation? Verse 3. What is it? Jesus' resurrection. If that happened, everything Jesus said is true. Was true and is true. This isn't just hope. It's living hope. As alive as Jesus is alive to make sure it happens. That's why the resurrection is what the Christian faith stands or falls on. If you have questions about that, because it's outside of the purview of the talk, come and chat to us. We'd love to chat to you about that. But it would be no good having a glorious future on paper if we didn't have a solid foundation. And so when we say that the foundation is the resurrection of Jesus, it means to me as a Christian, death isn't the last page in my existence. I look forward to, as Jesus did, rising from the dead and spending eternity with God. But I've also said that new, with this new birth, as you see in the passage, comes not only a living hope, but an inheritance. In verse 4, he talks about this amazing inheritance, which is a bit of a touchy thing, don't you think, to talk about inheritance. I have in-laws, and um, if you know me, I can be awkward at times. But in a conversation with my in-laws, um, I have been known to say casually, Hey, you guys, have I made it into the will? Because I just want to manage my expectations. I just need to know. Okay, you have a beautiful home, and I know you're not planning on selling it. Um, don't worry, we are still friends, very good friends, good family. They're, they're Christians. They love Jesus. They forgive, okay? But it's all very well, having an inheritance. But it's no good if you can't get to it, if you get spent, if you die before it. Who's to say as I said, that you're even in the will. But verses 4 and 5, we, we find something more wonderful and secure than a bag of money, than real estate, because those things run out. This inheritance will never perish, will never spoil, it will never fade. Basically, can't be destroyed, can't be taken away. But what is it? If you've been following your Bible history since the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, um, you know that God had promised to Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith, in chapter 17 of Genesis, that he would give him, an as an everlasting possession, the land of Canaan. 
By the time we move from Genesis to Joshua, a little bit later, chapter 11, verse 23, we read this. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions. And then we, if you know your Bible history, we enter into that terrible time of God's people sin, and then they're judged, and then they repent, and then God forgives them and raises up a judge or some help. And that cycle happens so many times that where we find ourselves as God's people later in the Bible is landless. They'd been promised a land where they could worship God freely, and they don't have it. But here's the point of this inheritance of the promised land. Here's what it's about. If you're an Israelite and you're there, you get to freely worship God. That's the point. The whole point is not having property, is not having just a piece of land here or there, but living under his rule is the point. He is the inheritance. That is the hope. And Peter uses that image to remind us that that's the glorious hope of the Christian. That at the end of their journey, however much suffering they face on earth as these Christians were facing, what do they get? A glorious future with God. Do you see that in verse 5? The inheritance that is kept until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You get God fully, unreservedly, as a certain inheritance when this salvation is finished. Which in verse 7 we find out it's finished when Jesus turns up in the skies. He's revealed and we, that signifies that we spend eternity with him. As this beautiful metaphor of God shielding his people by his power because they have faith in him. But we can ask this question. God is certain, but what about me? But Peter says, because of your faith in him, because of your trust in him, if you are a Christian, he will shield you until the day Jesus returns. Shield you from what? That's where a group of false teachers that we know as prosperity teachers, this is one thing that, one of the many things that they get so massively wrong. Because is God promising to shield his children from suffering and pain? No. Because in our next point, we're going to see that God uses suffering to refine his children's faith and trust in him. What does he, what does he protect then? He seems to protect their faith, their trust in him throughout that season of trials until they receive the great prize, which is God, for all eternity. So basically, Christians look forward to a glorious future with God. It's certain as the resurrection of Jesus was certain. It's a living hope as alive as Jesus is. He is our inheritance and he will protect our faith until we get there. I wonder, how does something like that, a glorious future to look forward to, how does that change your present, your right now? Can we say with Peter that perhaps when we get there, our worst moments, our greatest difficulties, will by then seem like fading memories in comparison with our eternal future with God? Maybe that is something that you and I need to hear tonight, that as we look forward to that future. God gives us little tokens right now that he will fulfill that promise 
that the sufferings that we face now are not the end. But we are, I said that we are excited about this glorious future, but mainly because we get to enjoy some of him right now. That's what that glorious joy is about. So a glorious future, a glorious joy. Because the thing is, for many of us here this evening, this concept of future joy is very hard, isn't it? Particularly if you're my generation or younger than me, has anybody here ever heard the term delayed gratification? Delayed gratification? Anyone? Some of you. Basically, that means having to wait for stuff that is good, you don't want to wait. Okay? I struggle with that. So you, de you delay that pleasure, that good. If I want to play a game, I know that online I can buy it, I download it right now. Okay? The sky's the limit, or my internet connection is the limit. If I want to buy music, I download it to my phone, my laptop, straight away. If I want to contact someone, I want them to respond immediately. And if they read my text and they don't reply, I know because my phone tells me. I'm impatient. I want it right now. That is some of you, actually, by the way. You can, you can ask Andy about that later on. Um, if I have some free time and I want to relax, back when I was young, if you want to watch something... You watch one episode, it's coming out Monday, and then you, you torch it throughout the week, waiting for it to come out next Monday. Not now. Not if you have a subscription service. You can watch the whole thing overnight. Okay? Some of you thinking, perish the thought. But there we are. Pray for me. Why am I telling you this? Because if all we talk about is future, 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 and we forget that there is a glorious joy in our relationship with God now, the future won't make sense. Because the future with God only makes sense because we know if you are a Christian, you get to enjoy God's presence, you get to enjoy His love now. And it's a little sample, a little taste, a little token that makes you look forward to that time with Him forever. You enjoy Him now, you'll enjoy Him forever. And he says in verse 6, doesn't he? In light of all of this, you greatly rejoice. In light of all the certainty of this living hope, all the certainty of this inheritance that is being with God when Jesus appears, because you've understood your faith, that's the start of your joy when you think about it. It isn't based on just our circumstances. So that he can say to these Christians that even in their suffering, they can know this joy. So not just based on their circumstances, because it's all about their perspective in their circumstances, isn't it? I work from uh, the office most of the week, uh, but because I live about 90 steps that way, sometimes I'll go and have lunch uh, at home, and I'll just turn the TV on quickly while I have lunch, and I'm astounded by the number of programs about buying an antique and then reselling it. I'm really sorry if you love those programs, uh, but they, they seem as beyond me. But what is interesting about those things that are being sold um, is that I look at them and I go, who in their right mind would want to buy this garbage? And I think one of, the, one of those uh, kind of in one of those episodes, someone purchases a um, 10 pound Chinese looking vase. Okay, it is a little bit nice looking, 
I would say. I, I would have it. I would buy it for my wife as a present, perhaps. Ten pounds as well. That's not bad, is it? <laughs> but to all appearances, a regular-looking vase. Until this, this chap puts it on eBay, and it's going, when he next looks, for about £10,000. And he goes, just wait a minute, just wait a minute. I'm going to take it off eBay, takes it off eBay, hires some experts, and they find out that it's a 220-year-old King Dynasty relic that is worth, in the end, 61000 a tenner, he bought for a tenner. I need to be buying these things. <laughs> 61,000 pounds. What is the difference between a rubbish car boot sale vase and that vase? To my eyes, there is no difference. <laughs> but what changes is the eyes that look upon it. Looking at suffering in life, as I was just saying, Someone may experience the same circumstances in life and completely flounder and drown. And someone, like some of the Bible characters we see, in their grief, which is okay to grieve, in their tears, which is okay to cry, they feel they can cry out to God and know the joy that even in their grief is present because he is walking hand in hand with them in their suffering. That is better than happiness. That is what I call, what Peter calls, a glorious joy. I think what I find difficult sometimes about this is, even though in our faith it is difficult sometimes to go through suffering and difficult times, goodness me, if I did not have it, if I, if I did not know Jesus, I don't know how I would have got through some of the things that happened to me. I don't know how some of you would have gotten through the things that you have told me God helped you through. Imagine you're an atheist. If I asked you, why am I suffering? What would you say? Or somebody like Richard Dawkins, who is a famous atheist, would say, this is a fact of evolutionary biology. It's what happens in the animal kingdom. It's a fact of life. When animals suffer, lose their young, get sick, they just get on with it. That's all there is to it. Get over it as best as you can. There's no reason for it. No rhyme in it. And nothing after it. Isn't that hopeless? Pretty hopeless. And it, it goes against the grain of our experience of the world. That's because we were made to believe as Peter believes. That God has more for us. Let's talk about three things about suffering that against all expectations in this passage allow Christians to experience joy despite their suffering. But before I say anything, can I just acknowledge... In front of you, I have no authority to talk about suffering. I'm a 29-year-old, inexperienced assistant pastor. I have no idea what it's like to suffer some of the things you've suffered through. Uh, just uh, last month, uh, Megan and I went to visit uh, a friend, uh, friends of ours. Uh, I mentioned, actually, this family to you, not by name, but uh, when we did the first talk. Uh, because I said probably in the next few weeks she will pass away. Uh, and our friend, she was only 50, uh, passed away from peritoneal cancer. And we are spending time there with the family, spending the new year with them. And I'm thinking, of my own experience, I can't say anything to these people. But if I humbled 
by this can point them to the eternal, trustworthy word of God. Isn't that so much reliable, so much more reliable than just my opinion? So whatever I say, see it coming from God's word, not from an inexperienced 29-year-old. But Peter says that there are three things that are really interesting about suffering here. Number one, that it's temporary. The suffering that we face, if you are a Christian, isn't going to last forever. Look at verse 6. How does he say it? A little while. A little while. Often knowing how long something is going to take helps us get through it. I know that for some of you, that was your experience last Christmas, hanging out with people you didn't want to spend time with. Maybe you were thinking about some cousins that were just really annoying, and you were reminding yourself, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, and you were thinking, it's just two days. We're going to be home in no time. I'm going to be on my own again. Knowing something doesn't last very long helps us get through it. When you uh, grow, you kind of resign yourself to the fact that even though you have colleagues in your workplace that are just really rub you up the wrong way, what is, what is the most common thought that I see on social media? Friday is coming. <laughs> Whatever the week has for me, Friday is coming. But in a healthier way, Peter shows us that we rejoice in all that God has done for us, and that makes us remember that what we are facing now won't last forever. I wonder how many of you need to hear that this evening. That the thing that is not temporary is God walking with you. But the second thing is that suffering is not only temporary, in verse 6, but suffering is purposeful, in verse 7. It refines us. If suffering was like, a, like, I don't know, building castles in the sand, and we felt there was no rhyme, no reason for it, the next tide comes in and just washes it away, we wouldn't be able to survive. There's the story I heard once um, somebody tell, Imagine with me uh, that there's a bear in a forest. And this poor bear uh, has contracted a terrible illness. It's very clear to everybody and the bear that he's going to die unless he gets help. So this very kind vet comes along and he thinks, goodness, what can I do? I could, A, go and reason with the bear. Excuse me, please. Can you just walk into this cage for a minute? I want to help you. That's not going to help, is it? Option B, he can get his rifle out and with tranquilizing darts, put the bear out for a few hours, operate on the bear, and then help him. So he opts for that option. Shoots the bear. The bear wakes up in the cage at that, mo- at that point with stitches. Does the bear love the man? I don't think so. He's feeling groggy, he's feeling drowsy. But no matter how much the man wanted to explain what he wanted to do, how he wanted to help the bear, the bear just doesn't have the capacity to understand it. Where are we going with this? I know the story isn't perfect as an illustration for the suffering of Christians. But what the story gets across is it answers the idea that we sometimes have. Listen, the suffering I face now If only I knew exactly what God has accomplished. If only I knew exactly why this has happened to me. I could live with it. But what if we couldn't fully understand it? 
even if God did explain it? What if it was like an astrophysicist trying to explain how a galaxy is born to a three-year-old? What if it was as difficult as that? What if, as we read it in this passage, all that we can handle is to know, if you are a Christian tonight, that God is accomplishing something in you as a Christian through the suffering that you face, that he is refining your trust in him. It is often really hard to not know and often really unfruitful to try and suggest to someone the reason why they are suffering. I don't even try. But as best as I can, I would like to encourage you and to say, God's faithful, trustworthy word says you can trust him to walk alongside you and to teach you what it means to trust him. Without being too glib, that means for some of you teenagers this evening, that disagreement with your parents is an opportunity for you to grow. That tension in relationship that you have with someone else, an opportunity for you to pray and ask God to help you have your faith refined. Often the shocking thing for me is, I want to pray, God deliver me from suffering. But the more I read the scriptures, the more I see Peter praying, Lord, refine me through my suffering. So that's controversial, but I want to encourage us tonight as a community of believers to counsel one another, to continue to ask God for help, to help us in our suffering. Only he can do that. But the third thing, uh, as we almost bring things to a close, is that suffering is, in verse 7, the pathway to glory. Now, during the, the conference that I was at last week, I was at a conference Monday to Thursday for children's and youth workers. Uh, I was almost the youngest there, which is a great privilege. Um, but during the last week, I met the other Brazilian. You know who I'm speaking of? I mentioned to you before that every time I meet a child or a young person and they ask me whether I like football, they are shocked, appalled, and they abhor the truth that I loathe football. But last week I met the other Brazilian who also does not like football. He fits into the Brazilian stereotypes as much as a British person who hates fish and chips and loathes tea fulfills their stereotype. Yet this week, I've been brought to ask again myself, as other people were surprised at that truth that was corroborated by me and this other Brazilian, I just kept questioning again, why does anyone like football? <laughs> why, why does anybody do any sort of professional sport? I looked it up on the internet. Did you know that even off-season athletes, professional athletes, train for about five to six hours a day, six days a week. The mind boggles. Why would you do that? I can't comprehend that level of commitment, okay? We're talking here about a lot of pain, sprains, strains, knee injuries, swollen muscles, more serious stuff like the risk of dislocations, broken bones, risk of death. If you are someone who skis, I mean, when I first came to the UK, I didn't know if, you are, if I was entitled to the NHS. Uh, mind you, I had to pay 600 pounds for two and a half years of it, that privilege. I didn't know, so I didn't do anything dangerous at all. 
because I thought I might not have health care. Why do athletes do that? Isn't it because of the very possibility of winning, the glory of applause? That's the reason why they do it, being number one, being a winner. In other words, they see the hard work of training, the pain that goes with the training as part of their pathway to victory. And in verse 7, Peter takes us to that same place. The faith that is produced by this temporary, purposeful suffering will have its end result of bringing you glory as a runner who finished his race and bringing Jesus glory because he was the one who was sustaining you all along if you are a Christian. So it's true that we face pain and difficulty, but what do we do with it? We remind ourselves that in the Christian life we run a race that's going to end with glory, praise, and honor for the God that we love. What other reason would there be for some of our young people here this evening? With their GCSEs and A-levels working hard, sweat drops rolling down their forehead as they carefully study night and day their textbooks, enjoying countless boring lessons, useless group projects where they do all the work that was never me. Why? Because of the goal. Results that allow you to go to university will be followed by a secure job. But that's uncertain, isn't it? You can't know that that's going to happen. Yet, as a follower of Jesus, each day, verse 8, is a day that reminds you. If you are a Christian, you know him, even though you haven't seen him. Every day that you know him, every day that you spend time with him, is a day where you're looking forward to and being reminded that that glorious joy is certain, now and forever. That joy is indescribable. It's inexpressible. It's hard to teach it. I can talk about it all day long, but I can't just make you feel it or know it, even though it's something you can't feel all the time. It can't be put into words. It's kind of like this. I love telling kids stories. Some of your children in this church have come to know that, and they know they can ask me for a story all the time. I'm con- continually um, desirous of buying books that I would never read on my own, just so that they're on my laptop for that moment when somebody's sitting next to me, and I can say, do you want to read the book with no pictures? Which, if you want to later on, we can do that. Um, but uh, while I was waiting for my uh, lift uh, last week uh, to this conference in a friend of mine's house, I was there at 7 a.m. He's a godly man because I needed to go with Megan to her work to get a lift. Um, and his little boy was uh, just talking to me. He's five. Noah, little Noah is five. And he was showing me his uh, Sleeping Beauty Blu-ray DVD. And he's only five. He said to me, if you have a closer look, Tiago, you will see that these little blobs are fairies. I'm like, if you have a closer look. He's five. Amazing vocabulary he has. When I read the book with no pictures, which is full of nonsense words, he could just read the words without having seen them before. Amazing. Amazing kid, right? This kid, who is really articulate as a five-year-old, sometimes gets so excited, so thrilled, that he can't speak. He can't, have you experienced this? can't speak. So he wants to tell me something, and he'll start and stop a sentence several times before um, he actually is able to say it. So you say, Tiago, Tiago, I want to, I want to, Tiago, I just want 
And I'm thinking, do I help him? Or do, do I have mercy? You know? But he's so thrilled, the words cannot come out of his mouth fast enough. His joy is inexpressible. It can't be put into words. I know it's not quite what Peter is talking about, because our joy in Christ is even more wonderful. As I said, I can talk to you if you're not yet a Christian tonight. These will seem like empty words until you experience God's love, his forgiveness, his mercy that makes Peter praise him in your own life. There's no explanation for it. So ask him, if you are a Christian, to remind you of this joy Pray, pray together, pray alone. Ask an elder, ask us to pray with you. If you have questions, come and talk to us. We love God's word. Because God's people have a glorious future. He's their living hope. He's their inheritance. God's people have a glorious joy. This joy that knows suffering is temporary, suffering is purposeful, it's the pathway to glory. Let me pray now that God would help us savor these truths for ourselves. Just a moment of quiet for you to think about that, and I'll pray.